And a portfolio life is basically predicated on, on three ideas. One is that you are more, your identity is more than any one job or industry or opportunity. So define who you are bigger than your career. Number two, we are going to have many opportunities over time. And that zigging and zagging, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. And, you know, number three, when your needs change, not if, but when they change, you can and should rebalance this mix of things you do, right? You get this diversification by doing more than one thing. And you can rebalance the mix just like you do a financial portfolio. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked about being a career entrepreneur with Sean Fahey, founder and CEO of Bitcruiter. Sean pointed out that one of the reasons why he is a career entrepreneur is that what he loves is the process and the challenge of building and growing businesses rather than being in love with a specific product or a specific industry. Today, we look at entrepreneurship from yet another angle, almost opposite. Christina Wallace is a former entrepreneur and currently a professor at Harvard Business School. She's writing a book about the portfolio life. It's a concept that acknowledges that we all have multiple interests and that given how business has evolved, the idea of a linear career no longer applies. In this world, we look at our life as a portfolio of experiences that may or may not build on each other and sometimes may actually be happening at the same time. And in a world with increasing speed, uncertainty and complexity, in the long run, managing our career as a portfolio makes us happier and more effective. Before we dove into the conversation about the portfolio career, Christina shared her story as an entrepreneur, and specifically she talked about the failure that she went through and the many lessons that she learned from that failure. It's a powerful, vulnerable, and extremely instructive conversation, and I am truly grateful to her for being willing to share it with us. Give an introduction to our listeners, who you are, what you're doing, and how you ended up here. Sure. That's a bold opening right there. Let's see if I can do it concisely. My name is Christina Wallace. I am a professor at Harvard Business School, where I teach entrepreneurship and marketing. I've been here, this is my third year, and before this was doing something completely different. I was an entrepreneur for a decade, building companies in uh, quite a wide range of spaces, ed tech, fashion, media. And before that, I was a performing artist. I was a theater director and an opera singer and uh, a musician across multiple instruments. So all over the place, but that's part of what has made my path so much fun. And that is certainly one of the things that I espouse when I talk to people who have lots of different interests or trying to figure out how to make them fit together for their lives. You mentioned you had a very varied career and start. I'm interested, obviously, as you progress from performer to entrepreneur, you started forming a vision of who you were and who you wanted to be and what were your goals. How do you define authenticity for you? And sort of how do you start to form your identity as a leader? I love this question of authenticity because I think one of the pressures that I have felt the most in my career is to, to focus, to be just one thing. 
even if not externally, just the vision of what is I'm doing, right? The story I'm telling or the identity that I, I make public, I have felt pressure to narrow it in to be a, a memorable one word, one industry, one thing that makes it easy for people to understand me. And that has felt incredibly inauthentic to me. I am not easy to understand. I, I willingly accept this. And what I bring to the table is that intersection of different worlds. I bring different networks. I bring experiences that may not on paper look like they connect, but the diagonal connection is actually where the insight comes from. And the reason you want to work with me is because of these multiple things that I do. So to, to focus or to give off an identity that is focused is truly inauthentic. And, and I struggled with this for a while because I would introduce myself at a dinner party or at an investor event, and I would feel like I had to like list off everything on my resume, which just in the end, I think made it maybe look like a dilettante more than anything else. Until I finally landed on this phrase that I'm a human Venn diagram. I, I think I might have been a little tipsy one night at an investor event when I started this out and it just clicked. It it worked and the investor goes, oh, that's really interesting. So you do, you do multiple things that intersect. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly it. And so I started using that as my way of introducing myself, that I am a human Venn diagram and I have built a career at the intersection of business, technology, and the arts. That doesn't tell you my job title on any given day. Um, it certainly doesn't tell you, you know, what I did today teaching in a classroom, but it gives you enough about who I am and where I live and interact that you can decide if you want to know more. And then you can say, huh, tell me more and we can have a conversation from so this resonates incredibly for me because it's been a huge barrier and a source of anxiety for me too. It's like when I was transitioning from a marketing consultant to a coach, I had this phrase in my mind of sitting in front of a CMO and being told, but who are you? Are you a marketer or are you a coach, right? which is part of the training that we are given. If you go on the web right now and look for like, how do you build your own business? <laughs> Niche. Exactly. But like, not only I'm not niching, I'm doing seven different things. What were some of the crucial elements that helped you overcome those voices? In, in those moments, because I'm sure as you, as you mentioned, like, you know, it was a source of anxiety for you too. For sure. And I think at, certainly at the beginning, when I was making that first transition from the arts to the business world, you know, I came to HBS as an MBA student and I wanted people to take me seriously as a business person. And I thought, who, who's going to take seriously the girl whose resume says that she scheduled rehearsals for a horse and a donkey and a couple of, you know, dogs, which is something I literally did do for the opera of War and Peace. And so I, I thought, well, I should take all of that off and just focus on what I can do as a business person. But then I had nothing on my resume. So, so that didn't quite work. And so I went to speak with Clay Christensen, who was uh, one of my professors. And he was starting research on, he hadn't published it yet, I don't think, The Innovator's DNA. 
And it was work that he was doing with a couple of colleagues where they studied, they interviewed and then surveyed and studied hundreds of the most innovative people, not just in business, but across a lot of different sectors. And they identified these traits that were consistent across all of them. And there were five of them. And there was one of the five was this backbone of the DNA, which was the power of associating. And it was that ability to see connections between currently unconnected ideas or unconnected spaces. And I think just giving that skill, that mindset, a name legitimized it for me, realizing this is a thing. It's not just me being weird. It's not just like in my head, I think there's value to it, but how do I convince someone else that there is? It was the fact that there was a name for it, that someone as smart as as Dr. Christensen thought it was worth studying and, and doing research on, that that, I think, gave me permission to focus on that skill as one of the key you know, skills that I bring to the table. Why would you want to work with me or, or include me on anything? Well, I bring this power of associating. And to understand that, you need to know all the other things as part of my background, right? This is, this is what I bring to the table. So it gave me vocabulary and a way to still give a very specific value prop to whoever I'm sitting across from, right? I, I'm not just reciting everything I, I can do on my resume, right? It's not like a product spec feature list or something. But I found the way to connect those ideas under one concept or one umbrella. And I think that helps people hook onto just a, a, a first grip, right? Like if you're climbing the mountain, you need a hand grip to get started. It gives them that hand grip on who you are that then gives you permission to broaden the conversation. When you first got to HBS, the first thing was remove all the things that were, you thought were not relevant. Were there moments in your business career where you let that other side of you saying, oh, people are going to get confused, get the better of you and found yourself in a situation where like realized that that didn't work for you? And I'm wondering if the answer is yes, if you would be willing to share an example. I mean, I think uh, over and over, I feared in the business world that my background as an artist would would make people think less of me or or think that I wasn't serious or smart, to be honest. Now, what I sometimes will point out in those introductions is I double majored in math and theater. Like I, I, I am actually smart, I promise. But I had this baggage that that creativity and that entire initial source of my training and my passion and my love of theater and music and creative writing would make people not trust that I could do all these other things like build a business. And so when I first started fundraising for my first startup, I again, tried to hide those things and would lead with I'm an HBS MBA. And I spent a year at BCG doing management consulting. You know, it's just, it's all the brands that I'm trying to have you anchor on, like, trust me, I, I can figure this out. And as I would go into these pitches, and they would constantly say, why you? Why are you the team that should found this company? And I found myself having to dig back into that creativity skill set to say, why me? Because on the surface, my business skills were not enough to build the company I wanted to build. And I wasn't the best in the room. I had two years of an MBA and one year of consulting. Like, I don't know everything there is to know about business. 
But that mix of I'm a storyteller, I can sell anything, right? I I understand how to connect and I can create something from nothing. It was a skill set like honed during my theater days. Um, that that combination is why they should bet on me. And it became clear after so many meetings when I wasn't standing out as someone worth betting on, um, that it became obvious that, well, of course not, if I'm going to hide part of who I am, that I'm not someone you want to take a chance on. So I have to show you all of me. And in particular, all of these weird, random experiences add up to what makes me someone you should bet on. So did you actually experience like getting funding once you kind of dropped the mask, if you will? Yes, it wasn't as simple as my next pitch led to a check. Let's be honest. <laughs> but but we did. We ended up raising about a million dollars in venture capital when we finally were able to, you know, all the pieces clicked, right? They want to know why you as a founder, why now, why this product, why this business, why this customer. And if any of those pieces are inauthentic, no one's going to get on board. So yes, we were able to land funding once I was willing to kind of tell that full story. Tell me a little bit about that first startup. What was the experience like? What were like the major learnings for you and how that helped you embrace more this vision of sort of the connector? So that first startup, uh, it was a fashion tech company called Quincy Apparel. And tech is a little bit in quotations. This is back in 2011, where if you had a website and you were a brand, but you called yourself a tech company, you could raise venture capital funding. So we were in the line of Wolby Parker and Bonobos and ModCloth. There was a whole like suite of us going after that same business model. Um, we ended up, uh, you know, we were building, my co-founder and I, Alex Nelson from one of my HBS classmates, we built this brand for women who wanted workwear, wanted an apparel brand that still felt like them, particularly women who worked in more conservative industries, who saw to wear suits and, and all of those kind of costumes for work. They wanted to still feel like themselves. And crucially, they wanted clothes that fit them. Women's clothes, for a myriad reasons that we don't have time to go into, just don't fit women's bodies. And it's incredibly frustrating. So we had uh, a different approach that involved real body sizes and measurements um, to create this different sizing standard. Unfortunately, it is very complicated and expensive to build a new brand of clothing, particularly if you are changing virtually every element of the operations model. And so we learned the hard way that you can have a product that customers want, <laughs> that you can have a value prop that people get excited about and still fail if the pieces of your business model don't fit. And particularly for us, it was the operations product fit that wasn't there. So we failed. And as a student who complained at HBS that we never studied failure, even in the entrepreneurship curriculum, my entrepreneurship professor, Tom Eisenman, very kindly gave us just enough time to lick our wounds and get back on our feet. And then he tapped us on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want to be the face of failure? At HBS, can I write a case study on Quincy and how it failed? And we said yes. And that has turned into one of the ways that I found my way back here to becoming a professor. We came back and got to teach that class every year to all eight, 900 MBAs and got to have a real conversation about 
what failure means and what's the cost of failure and how do you integrate that into your story such that eight, nine years later, when I was ready to make a pivot from building startups to doing something a little bit more sustainable, I have kids now, it just, all the pieces were there to come back and join the faculty. First of all, amazing courage to choose to be the face of failure in a place like HBS. <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit. What are, what are the key lessons? And, you know, I know everybody says like, oh, failure is just a growth opportunity. But the reality is that when you're going through it, you're nothing like, oh, great. I'm going to learn. <laughs> oh, this will give me some talking points for my next interview. No, failure hurts. Failure is hard for sure. And, and I don't discount that the cost of failure can be very different in different industries, in different cultures, for sure. In the U.S., we tend to be much more tolerant of failure than we see in many other countries. It also is different for different people and the resources and the privileges that they might bring. So there's, there's research done on this. There's a whole chapter on failure in my book because I think it's it's so important that people get un uh, comfortable with this notion that failure will be part of their story. It's only a question of when, not if, right? So you, you want to be prepared for this. But there, there are sort of three buckets of when you're thinking about the cost of failure, of course, where business school people, there are always buckets involved, usually three. So exactly. uh, financial, was... <laughs> you were thinking it. There's the financial costs which could be as painful for us as losing all the money that we had invested in the company. It could be opportunity costs. It could be the cost of getting back on your feet. So at the time that my company failed, I was single. I don't come from family money. I actually send money back to my family every month. So I didn't have anyone else that I could go to, to pay my rent, to buy me food. I owed at the time six figures in student loans and had that debt just piling up while I was building my company. And so the financial costs of failure were, were not minimal in this case. You know, I was paying my rent with a cash advance on my credit card and I had a real burning need to get a job with a salary as soon as possible. I didn't get the chance to sort of lick my wounds and feel bad about failing. Like I had to get a job 30 days later or I was going to be evicted. And I did. It, it was a great motivator to get back on my feet. But there are uh, different resources that different people have and, and the financial costs of failure are non-trivial non for many people. There's also the sort of sociological costs of failure, right? The, the perception that people might have of you. People who are given the benefit of the doubt, people with, I don't know, a Harvard MBA might be given a second chance more easily. So that is really interesting. I mentor students at the Harvard iLab, which is the institute that helps student founders in any of the schools. And they feel a lot of pressure. They feel like I got into Harvard, I got this incredible springboard, and now I have to build a unicorn. And so, you know, the, the standards that they benchmark themselves against are almost impossible. And what I tell them is that, think about this, not as just a springboard, but as an insurance policy, a safety net that will allow you to take a lot more risk. Because I'm pretty sure that when you went and told two people and said, well, I tried this startup, and they see... BCG and HBS, 
when they look at you, they're not looking at somebody who was dumb and made a stupid move. They, you know, they think, oh, here is somebody who was very courageous and willing to take a risk. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And that if you are given the benefit of the doubt, right, the, there's research done on who is allowed to not just fail and fail up, but who is being judged on potential versus on performance. And in many cases, right, men are much more often judged on potential, women on performance. And there are other racial and other sort of dimensions of our identity that might give you a cushion, a safety net of just, I'm going to give you a second chance. You look like someone who should who should be successful. So I'm going to discount this failure rather than say, well, this might be all you're capable of. And, and so those are very different costs for different people. And, and so you, when you're taking advice from anyone, me included, you also have to filter for how much of this is relevant to my circumstances or is there a way that I can build my safety net, build my, my track record so that I can earn that second chance if I fail? So many times when I'm mentoring startup founders who don't have that HBS credential or who don't have kind of the, the benefit of the doubt, I say it might be an opportunity to build something where you know you can hit a single or a double. You can get that track record of some, some success. Maybe it's not the home run that you have in the back of your head but earn the track record that says, I got this. So that even if you make a misstep on your second or your third at bat, you're given another shot to go for that big home run. I don't know why I'm using baseball metaphors here. I am not a sports person, but the, the point is you're not limited to where you start from. There are ways of building that sociological safety net for failure, but you need to be aware of where you're starting from so that you can put yourself in the right position to be able to make that failure and still recover. That's a conversation that you may want to have with a founder. A lot of the founders like, oh, I want to go in and start up and, and hit big. And it's like, no, maybe think about how you, you build that. You know, if somebody who's listening now is thinking about starting a business, what are some of the steps in thinking about an inventory of this safety net and thinking maybe, maybe whether, you know, what's the best move for them right now? Well, so one of the best ways is you're thinking about how do I maybe ladder up and earn the right to take bigger bets, make bigger swings is, you know, we have, at least in the startup world, we have this mindset of like, if you don't quit your job and go all in, you don't shoot for the moon. If you're not trying to build a unicorn, like, why are you even doing this? Right. And that is absolutely one way to build a company. And there are several people who have been successful doing that. But the majority of people who take that approach fail. We've seen the statistics. And if you are able to absorb that failure and you're willing to take that shot anyway, great. But if that sort of a failure, if you get one shot and the whole thing falls apart means you never get another shot at building a company, there are other ways. You can build a revenue generating cash flow, customer funded business from day one. You don't have to take VC money. You can look for strategic or angel investors or friends and family investors to give you some working capital, but who will not have unrealistic expectations of growth and push you to swing for the fences before you're ready. You could take out loans. We never talk about small business loans or other types 
of, of debt instruments that founders could use to finance a business. So there are all of these different models that you could use to, to prove yourself and to gain some traction without the shoot for the moon uh, approach. And I, I just wish that was more of the conversation, especially for entrepreneurs who might not have that ability to absorb a big failure. It's a broader conversation than just a risk management, right? It's like understanding why you even want to get into becoming a startup because startup life is not here I am, Mark Zuckerberg, billionaire. That's not the reality for the majority of the founders. And not everyone wants that life. I mean, this is a conversation I have with my students so often. I think we we put up certain founders or certain companies, put them on covers of magazines, or we hold them up as models for people to follow. But we're not talking about maybe the trade-offs or the other opportunities that aren't available to them, right? This is a very specific model of leadership and of business building and of success. And if you want it, then great. You have some examples that you can follow their playbook. But you don't have to be a public company. You don't have to be a gazillionaire. You don't have to be the founder that takes the company all the way through IPO and still runs it 20 years later. Um, you can have a really great life with a $5 million profitable business that you own 100% of, right? And maybe you'll never be on the cover of Fortune magazine. But other than framing that for your wall, what does that get you either, right? Like, like to your point of you're feeling like maybe a failure at one point for having wasted your HBS, you know, uh, springboard. Like springboard to what? What do you want in your life? I think there's just so many examples of people saying, well, success is blank. So I have to aim for that because I am someone who succeeds. And that's sort of that last bucket of failure that a lot of people, myself included, struggle with the most, which is the psychological aspects of failure. I am someone who up until the point my company failed, had never failed at anything. And it was becoming such a self-fulfilling prophecy that I would not take risks or not try things that I thought I might be bad at. Because that wasn't part of who I am. That wasn't my identity. And Quincy really was the first time that I just like faced flat on the floor, just failed. <laughs> and I realized I needed to practice being bad at things if I wanted to be able to keep going down this path as an entrepreneur and as someone who built something that wasn't a guaranteed outcome. How is your definition of success and what you wanted for yourself as an entrepreneur changed over time? Let's say before you made the decision, you know, right now you're teaching, you have other priority temporarily. But how has that definition of success changed? I mean, I think at the beginning, at, like many entrepreneurs, there's sort of several layers to what success means, right? That on the one hand, it's I want to build something that I believe should exist in the world. And seeing women wear the clothes that I made, seeing them feel better about themselves and, and helping them feel successful, becoming a household name, right? Becoming a brand that everyone has heard of. And certainly, the financial, you know, implications, personal and uh, and otherwise that come with that success, right? I, I never wanted to be a gazillionaire, but not having to 
count my pennies and keep track of receipts would certainly be, you know, a nice level of financial comfort that I could call successful. And I think over the 10 years or so that I built uh, various companies, that certainly the financial aspect has always been something, especially not coming from resources and being someone who does support my family. There is a minimum level of financial success that I have to be able to meet. But as I got older and, and built out more of my life, I got married and I knew I wanted a family. Control over my time became one of my primary metrics of success. I am not afraid of working hard and I am very busy, <laughs> often, maybe more busy than I should be. But as long as I am the one setting that schedule, I don't resent it. And it allows me to have all the pieces of my life. I can be there for bedtime. I can write a book and do all the things, right? As long as I'm in the driver's seat, that is success for me. When I feel like I am being run ragged on someone else's schedule is when it doesn't work for me anymore. And you couldn't pay me enough money. There's, there's literally no dollar amount that you could pay me to work those type of hours on someone else's schedule. And I think that is a, a key consistent trait I have found among entrepreneurs. That resonates so much. Was there a moment when you felt your definition of success was maybe driven more by external factors and then it transitioned more to internal? Yeah, I would say my two years at Harvard Business School were probably the two that I felt an external definition of success take over for me. Um, this is a magical place that can, can change trajectories for, for everyone who comes through its doors. And <laughs> it's not a but, it's an and. It has a very strong culture for good and for bad. You can come in being an incredibly oddly shaped puzzle piece as I was. And somehow by the end of your first semester, you're all wearing a gray suit going out for consulting interviews, right? Like, I don't know how it happens. It's in the water, I think. And I am very grateful for my time at BCG. I consider it in some ways almost like a finishing school on my MBA. It made me actually do the things that I've been talking about in the classroom for two years. But anyone who knows me can tell I was never meant to be a management consultant, certainly not for more than a year, a year and about four days, I think I made it. It's just not who I am. And it was hard here at Harvard because it was such a prescribed path with such clear prestige that everyone valued and understood. And the alternative was so hazy and unknown that turning down an easy, obvious path for this validation in favor of this like, you know, hazy forest without even a headlamp, it felt like a, a decision that no one would make. And so I walked, you know, down this consulting path just long enough to graduate and start the job and then realized like, oh dear, I have made a huge mistake. And to their credit, they were so supportive when I was like, I need to leave and go start a company. Like this is, it's not you and it's not me. It's just, we're not doing this. Yeah, I, I get it. I worked at Bain for a couple of years and organizations like Bain, BCG, McKinsey, 
are incredibly good at creating the conditions and the environment for somebody who is passionate about that type of work to do it the best possible way and succeed at it. I always joke, I wish I wanted to be a management consultant because I will not ever find another organization that's as good at supporting my professional goal and, and, and work dream. Agreed. I mean, these were some of the smartest people I have ever had the privilege of working with. Some of the kindest, too. It was incredibly warm and friendly. We had all the resources we could possibly need. And, you know, every friction that might pop up was either already taken away or was going to be taken away the second you brought it up, right? Like, they made it easy to do exactly what you are amazing at doing. And I still didn't like it. And that was how I knew I had to leave sooner rather than later. I think a lot of people struggle with overcoming what's expected of them and getting to the point when they finally have the courage to embrace who they are and go towards that. And sometimes the external things around you are really powerful. So this this was another thing that Clay Christensen like beat in our heads. I had the privilege of taking a class with him and I think it's probably the most important classroom experience I've had as a student. And one of the things that he just said over and over again was, as you progress in your career, as you hit through these stages of success, you will always have two choices. You can lock yourself in to this, whatever that new step is as the status quo. Get the more expensive mortgage, put the kids in the expensive private school, start to accumulate the things that that become now status quo. And then to walk away from those things becomes incredibly hard. Or you can basically keep living your life the way you've been living it. And as you get each raise or each little extra perk, you just sort of, I don't know, put it away or forget about it or donate it. Up to you. But it's not like an arms race between like each step up requires a step up in the things that can lock you in to that path. If you choose to lock in, it is so much harder to change course, to walk away, even at the point when you realize I am unhappy, this is not the life I want to be living, that it takes so much more bravery <laughs> to leave then than if you choose not to ever get locked into that. And I had the privilege in the arts before I came to business school of making very little money. And so when I started at BCG, I still lived on the budget that I had lived on when I worked at the Metropolitan Opera before business school. I did not let myself get locked into a six-figure salary or all of the trappings that come with being able to afford nice things. And so 12 months in, or really a few months in when I knew it wasn't a good fit, I knew it wouldn't be that hard to walk away now. But the longer I stayed and the more comfortable I got with it, the harder it would be to change. And so I think as you're trying to, A, be true to yourself about what makes you truly happy, and B, preserve that optionality or that flexibility to maybe have several seasons of your life, be really thoughtful about basically the operational model, the business model for your life that you set up. How much do things cost? How much flexibility do I have in my fixed expenses? How do I piece these things together about what I monetize and, and what I invest in to either increase that optionality or, or lock me into choices that might not be a fit later on? 
And what about the psychological aspect of walking away from something that you think you should do because you're so lucky that you have it? And, you know, I guess about who's in this position right now and struggling with the decision. What are some of the psychological things that they can do? I mean, I, I think that the core of this is you have to believe that what you're walking toward is better than what you're walking away from. If you don't believe that, then you're not ready to leave. Convincing others whether it's your parents or your partner or your classmates at reunion or whatever that is, that that's sort of a second step removed. But if you don't believe it yourself, you're not ready. Once you believe it, that the opportunity ahead of you is better than, or could be better than, even if it's not guaranteed yet, it could be better than what you are walking away from. And you have to be honest about what you're walking away from because the vision of it may not be the reality for you. Then it's easier to tell that story to the other people around you because they see that you believe it too. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> if, if all you see is like the, the sheen of the job and you don't see why it doesn't fit you, it's you, you, like, you know, my mom thought I was crazy too walking away from a BCG salary for an unfunded bootstrap startup. But you got to believe it yourself. You mentioned that you're writing a book that's called The Portfolio Life, The Portfolio Career. What is a portfolio life? What are the key elements? And I'm sure a lot of that is part of the conversation we've had. But, you know, the sort of I always like to have two or three very practical tips. So, you know, how does somebody think about whether a portfolio life is a fit for them? And what are the what are the key steps that they can take towards that? So a little bit like Clay Christensen giving me the term of associative thinking. The portfolio life is me giving all of your listeners and myself, quite frankly, a term to legitimize something that many of us are already doing, right? I'm making it a thing. And now you can point to that thing and you can tell everyone else that they can see that thing too. And that thing is valuable. A portfolio life, it's my frame for what some people also call a portfolio career which is to say, from this point on, and it has been true for small groups over time, but I would say for almost everyone from this point on, there's no such thing as a linear career anymore. Not in one company, the way our grandparents did, not even in one industry or function, the way our parents did. We are going to zig and zag more than we ever thought possible. Purely because of the rate of technological change, industry change, disruption from every single angle, right? The world changes faster than it used to. So the work we do has to, will change. But on top of that, you layer in, as we've been discussing, we're not just one thing. No one grows up and says, all I am is a marketer. That's all I am. That's all I ever want to be. That's that's the one thing I am. I, I promise you, even the most passionate marketer, like secretly plays tuba and, you know, loves baking cakes, right? We all have these elements of ourselves. And a portfolio life is basically predicated on, on three ideas. One is that you are more, your identity is more than any one job or industry or opportunity. So define who you are bigger than your career. Number two, we are going to have many opportunities over time. 
Uh, and that zigging and zagging, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. And, you know, number three, when your needs change, not if, but when they change, you can and should rebalance this mix of things you do, right? You get this diversification by doing more than one thing. And you can rebalance the mix just like you do a financial portfolio. So for some people, one version of their portfolio life might be a full-time job with a couple of hobbies, an involvement at their you know, community center or their religious uh, community they're part of. It might be a side hustle that they're thinking about, maybe monetizing and turning into something. And then you get to a different point in your life, as I just did when I had children and said, I, I can't maintain the 100 hours a week that I was doing as an entrepreneur and be the type of parent that I want to be. I had already been doing this work at Harvard for many years on a volunteer basis. It was easy to rebalance and say, now I'm going to professionally be a, a professor and I'm going to volunteer my time in startup world as an advisor, an investor, a board member. Um, so I can remix depending on what I need at any given time. And, and that is, I think, the appeal for everyone of what a portfolio life is. And it gives you permission to say relationships, personal development, rest, my health, all of these things are part of a portfolio. Work is part of it too, for sure. But it's not just work versus life in a work-life balance, right? These are not on opposite ends of a dichotomy. They are one whole portfolio that collectively has to fit what you need at any given point. What is the advantage for an employer or a company that's hiring a consultant to pick somebody who has a portfolio life versus hiring a niche person? I think there are two advantages for employers. And I actually have a plea to employers in the book to say, this is, this is to your advantage to, to go after folks like this. Two things. Number one, People who have a collection of interests that see themselves beyond just their jobs, there's research on this, and I cite it in the book, um, that they are happier in their day job, in their good enough job, because they know that's not the only thing that they do, right? So if you are an employer who has jobs that on the whole are maybe not amazing life-altering opportunities that, that get people excited. Maybe they're just, you need someone to do this work. Going after someone who has other things that they do outside of the job means they're more likely to be a highly motivated, engaged employee on the job because they're grateful for what it gives them. A good enough job is really exciting for a lot of people. But the other advantage for employers is you hire someone who has all these other interests and these other things that they do, and you're willing to let them be open and honest about that. They're not hiding that away. You can benefit from those skill sets. I've heard stories of, of people who had, you know, uh, an administrative assistant who then they discovered was in fact a photographer and was able to go and join and do freelance marketing work for the, for the marketing team as a photographer. And they were able to benefit from her additional skills. She got an additional work stream because this was freelance work. It's not part of her day job. So they had to pay her. 
but they got to to take advantage of all those other things that she brought to the table because they could see her as a whole person and she was given permission to show that. And how about somebody who is hiring a board member or a, an executive coach or a marketing consultant who has a portfolio life? What are the benefits for them? I mean, I think it comes back to the power of associating. The more experiences you have, the broader your network. I talk in the book about orthogonal networks. Orthogonal is just a fancy mathematical term for perpendicular or non-redundant. The more that I can say, look, I'm bringing people or experiences or network to your table that you don't have access to. And I'm going to connect those dots for you, right? That makes a board member or a coach or a consultant so much more valuable than someone who has been in the niche, who has been the expert in how things have always been to date, but who might not have their eyes open to where things are going in the future. Well, that is great. And I think it's an excellent point to move to the personal question. So let's start with the first one. What is a hobby or a passion that you have outside of work and how that may be influenced or helped you with your work? So I have picked up athletics in general in my like 20s and 30s. I was not a sportsy kid, um, despite my baseball metaphors. I was an artsy kid. And I decided to start long distance running after Quincy failed. And I am a terrible runner. I am slow. Sometimes I walk. I am not gifted as an athlete, but I chose to take up half marathons and marathons so that I could practice being bad at something and still be willing to put my shoes on again the next day, which I have found to be incredibly helpful in business, in the startup world, as a mom. Oh my gosh, there's so many times where like finding the energy to keep going, even though you know you are just in a you're miserable right now and you're tired and it's not going well and you have to keep going. It applies in a lot of cases. So I am not a a, a gifted athlete, but I keep trying. And I think that endurance, that willingness to keep going, because what I found, this is my great secret of how do you run a marathon, is that as long as you keep putting one foot in front of the other, eventually you do cross the finish line. And then you're a marathoner. I have had a similar experience and a great lesson that I found for training for a marathon, which helped me tremendously, is learning that as long as you put in your five weekly training session, over time, you're going to improve. And seeing like a month after starting the training, your improvement, et cetera, it has really helped me bring that discipline into my work. So I 100% agree with that. Now we get to my favorite question of the (laughs) podcast, which is the world is full of either business cliches, business (laughs) processes, jargons, and not all of them resonate with us. So which is one that drives you crazy? I have many, but since I only get one, I will tell you. No, you you. get as many as you want. (laughs) The idea that anyone can give 110%. Not only is that not possible, it's just not possible. We have 100%. That's the max. But the notion that anyone can or should operate at at their max level at 100% for any sustained period of time is just not healthy. 
And I quote research in the book from the world of operations management. You may remember this from your, your days in the HBS classroom, where they teach you that sort of best practice for a factory, for a manufacturing line, is operating at about 85% capacity. So you're leaving space for routine maintenance, for mess-ups, for do-overs, for emergencies, urgent orders that have to get done. You're leaving space for life to happen without putting everything under stress. If you try to run a factory at 100% capacity, the whole thing will break down, your employees will burn out, people will get hurt, and instead of having routine maintenance, you will have emergency maintenance, which costs a lot more. So I would like to propose everyone start adopting the mindset of 85% is your sort of day-to-day contribution. And when you need to spike to 90 or 95, or 99, you've got the space to do it. But 110 is just BS. That's fantastic. <laughs> Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. Your choice. You can even answer both if you want, but either a, a recipe or a drink, or if we go the soul way, a book, a piece of music, a play, movie, piece of art that you go to for inspiration or you know that's special to you. So my food for the soul is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. That album I originally bought in high school I think it was part of my like Columbia records, buy one, get 11 free. And but like somehow you keep paying for these CDs for the rest of time. Not only does it just like put me in the right headspace and, and somehow just takes the edge off of whatever might be stressing me out, but listening, especially if you get the full extended, like special edition version that I think iTunes sells the like six or seven tracks that made it to the official record. And then. There are special bonus tracks of the false starts when you hear him stop and talk to his bandmates. And there are some other bonus tracks of him playing those same tunes in other contexts, live or, or in other spaces. And you hear what's at the root of, of these songs that make them what they are. And then you hear how the improvisation is just completely different from one performance to the next. And I think it's just so inspiring that even when you've got something as brilliant as as the music of Miles Davis, you still have to stay present in the moment. You've got to play to the audience you're with. You've got to create something new every time. You can't just go on autopilot and phone it in. I love that album. I love it too. Thank you so much. This has been very inspiring. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews or ratings like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo. And today I have a very special treat for you. To find out more about Christina and her work, go to our website, christinawallace.com, spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-W-A-L-L-A-C-E.com, or find her on LinkedIn. She's at linkedin.com backslash in backslash Christina Wallace. 
For more information and links, go to the podcast website, al4ep.com with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And on Twitter and Instagram, you can look for at al4edp. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm, and the theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Christina talked about her love for Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, and specifically she talked about how the extended edition shares some of the sessions in progress so you get a view into the artists at work. So today I decided to share something a little different. One of my favorite songs by Susan is called Memory of the Light, and it's on the record Haunted Heart. She wrote the song with another amazing songwriter, Scarlett Keys. And as an aside, if you are into songwriting, you should check out Scarlett's podcast, What's in a Song. Fabulous interviews with great songwriters and a lot of technical details on how to write great songs. Anyway, this is a work tape for the first time that they felt the song was almost finished. It's a quick recording done with an iPhone just to document the song. Scarlett is playing the piano and they are still working out on the harmonies. And as you will hear in a few places, they're also still figuring out some of the lyrics. The sound is not perfect, but this is what happens behind the scenes. It is the first step after the writing process on the long journey that a song goes through before it ends up on a record. Enjoy it. I'm just a casualty of the casual way you look at me. It's like you never knew me.
It's actually, yeah. I want everything, I want everything, or I don't want anything, but I'd give anything to feel you shine on me. When I look into your eyes, I see the memory of the It's good enough. Oh, I kept messing up that harmony, right? No, only that, that we got it the first time, so.